Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Really glad you're here with us, especially if you're new. We're just really glad you came today. And for those of you online, we're just glad that you're joining us as well. Well, my husband, Adam, he wanted me to watch this movie with him that he had seen on the plane. And that's pretty rare. I'm usually the one to say, hey, I saw this movie. You should watch it with me. But he had seen it before I did. It was an action movie. And so I checked it out online and it looked like, hey, there's some really good actors and actresses. And sure, let's, let's, let's take it. You know, let's, let's watch it. So we started watching it, and about 10 minutes into this movie uh, that he'd already seen, the supporting character, the boyfriend of the main character, dies off, like gets killed, like right 10 minutes into the, to the, to the movie. And I'm thinking, well, honestly, if this guy was just some no-name actor, I probably wouldn't have even noticed or really made a note of it. But I knew something Adam didn't, is that this actor was actually a really well-known actor a really well-known actor. And I thought for a second, well, that doesn't make sense, does it? That doesn't happen, right? What well-known actor takes the supporting role only to be killed off 10 minutes into the movie? Made no sense. So to test my theory, as a good wife does while they're, you know, watching a movie with their husband, I lean over and I'm like, I bet that guy isn't dead. I, I bet he comes back. I bet he comes back. And I look at Adam like nothing. He's just like watching the movie. And I'm like, oh, I, I bet he's the bad guy. I bet he's the bad guy. I bet he'll come back later in the movie. I bet he's the bad guy. And Adam just pauses the movie and he's like, seriously, Heather? Seriously? 10 minutes in and you've already figured this out? It took me two hours to figure that out. <laughs> and oh, maybe because I've just watched too many movies and I kind of know the plot and you know, I'm looking for those little clues and things. But I know as many of you do, is that a great supporting actor usually doesn't take, isn't the spotlight person, right? They're usually the ones to not just take away from the main actor or actress, they help them shine. They really help them shine. And they make them look good. That's, that's their job, is to make the main character look good. And they usually don't get a lot of screen time, you'll notice, those supporting roles. And a lot of times, we forget they were even in the film. How many times have you gone back and watched a movie and you're like, wait a minute, that guy's in the film? Like, <laughs> and he was just a supporting role, no-name actor back then. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Well, we've just recently started a series called Best Supporting Role, where we've been looking at characters in the Bible that are in the background, that are in the background. They're the ones that are the people behind the greats that we know and have heard and, and love in the Bible. And our hope is by bringing them into the limelight a little bit, we can better see their unique influence, their unique impact, and, and learn a little bit more about how God wants to use us, wants to use us in supporting roles in his kingdom. As Christians, maybe you don't realize this, but we are not the main characters in our story. At least we're not supposed to be. Christ is. Christ is supposed to be the main character in our lives. We're supposed to reflect him. We're supposed to make him look good. 
As Michael started off this series, he was talking about Abigail and her influence in David's life. And then Andrew last week talked about Jonathan and his influence also in David's life. And this week, we're gonna switch it up. We're gonna take a look at a different story. We're gonna be looking at the compelling story of Esther, uh, the book of Esther. And, And instead of looking at the main character for which the book is named, we're gonna be looking at her supporting mentor, her father figure, the father figure of of the story, Mordecai, Mordecai. So what we'll see is that a lot of these great characters probably wouldn't be so great if not for the supporting people around them. The story of Esther is true to that. She might not have even been included in the Bible if not for Mordecai. Because what we see is that God uses his supporting role in a pivotal way not only to help the queen, but to save his people. So let's go ahead and pray and invite the Holy Spirit to be with us this morning as he already is, but just more of him. And we'll uh, dive into the story today. Lord Jesus, we are, we're so very grateful for uh, just your presence here with us, but we do, we ask for more of you to be here. We ask for more. Lord, we just recognize our need for you this morning and we pray that you would just open our hearts and our minds to be aware of just any gentle invitation of your spirit. Just we thank you for all those that are here and, and those that are online. And I, and I pray, Lord, that you would show us how you want us to play an active yet supporting role in your kingdom. We just give you all the glory today, Jesus. We want you to shine in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and open up to the book of Esther today. Uh, who remembers this story? Yeah, you guys heard of this story? Okay, good, good. Uh, It's not the book of Ruth. That's the other one that's named after a woman. (laughs) It's the book of Esther, and she's the queen in this this story, the main character. Uh, Now, if you haven't read it recently, I would actually highly recommend that you go back and read it. It's it's only 10 short chapters. It's right after Ezra and Nehemiah. If you're looking for it right now, it's in the Old Testament. And, And though the author is anonymous, it's a work of literary genius. When you start diving into how it's written, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It, it reads like a, just a basic story of good versus evil, but it is so much more than that. It's so much more than that. There's theological subtlety. There's inverted parallelism, which I had to look up, and it was really cool, but it, I had to look that one up. There's triumphant reversals. It's a really cool story. And the setting of this story is set in about 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return home back to Jerusalem, like Ezra and Nehemiah did, many did not. Many were still scattered throughout Persia at the time. And and so the book of Esther is about this Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian empire. And some of the other characters other than Esther and Mordecai are King Xerxes, the king of the Persian empire at that time. He's a little bit of a pushover in this story. But then there's also the cunning villain, the villain who's Haman, who's more like an ancient day Hitler. So I wanna give you a high level picture of the story today, just for context. I don't think we'd do justice to Mordecai's life if we didn't give the overarching picture of what happens 
in this story, but I'm not gonna read all 10 chapters. <laughs> so I'm just gonna take more of the Cliff Notes version from the Bible Project. They do a really good job summarizing the story. So you guys ready from some story time with Heather? Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. So the book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts, all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. And on the last day of that banquet feast, he's already had way too much to drink at this point, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appears at the party to show off her beauty in front of, you know, a thousand drunk men. Now, um, she refuses for obvious reasons. And so in a drunken rage, the king disposes and banishes Vashti. Now on, they, they realize after this that, well, you know, you kind of need a new queen. So commissioners are sent throughout the whole empire to find the most beautiful women in the land. And they bring them back to the palace. Some scholars say maybe up to a thousand women were taken. And it's here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. And Esther is one of those girls that are taken. She is a beautiful Jewish orphan girl. And she's raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And when she's taken, Mordecai tells her not to say anything about her Jewish heritage. And after, get this, 12 months of beauty treatments, 12 months of beauty treatments, the king favors her more than all the rest. He marries her and makes her his queen. And now after this, Mordecai, he just happens to hear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. So he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king and saves his life. And then we are introduced to Haman. Now, Haman's not Persian. He's an Agagite, and that's, that's relevant. Uh, the king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom and demands that everybody kneel before him whenever he walks throughout the kingdom. He demands everyone kneel before him. Well, Mordecai doesn't. He refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage and then finds out, Mordecai's Jewish. Ah, he's Jewish. That's why he's not bowing. And Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people, all of the Jewish people. So then the focus turns to Mordecai and to Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people at this point. And they make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her identity, her Jewish identity to the king, and then ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request, according to Persian law, was an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai says that even if Esther remains silent, the deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud and he says, who knows, maybe, maybe you have become queen for such a time as this. And Esther responds with incredible bravery and she, pur she purposes to go to the king. And in her amazing words, she says, if I perish, I perish. Wow. And then we watch this ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. 
Esther enters into the court and is extended mercy. And then she invites Haman and the king to a banquet. And at that first banquet, she then asks them to come to another banquet, a more exclusive banquet with just Mordecai or just Haman and the king. So Haman leaves that banquet, again, there's a theme here, having too much to drink, <laughs> and sees the Mordecai in the street, which again just makes him really angry. And so he goes home and talks it over with his wife, and she says, well, you should, you should, you should deal with Mordecai. And so he builds this really tall stake to have Mordecai executed on it. And it seems like really anything, nothing could get worse than what's happening right now to Mordecai and the Jews. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. The story pivots. And it just so happens that that same night, the king can't sleep. And it just so happens that what's, written, what's read are the royal chronicles. He has the royal chronicles read to him as some you know, good bedtime reading. And I guess that would probably make me sleep too. And he just happens to hear, just happens to hear the account of how Mordecai had saved his life. And it is something that he's totally forgotten. He realizes that Mordecai has not been honored for what he did for the king. So the next morning, here comes Haman, and he enters to request Mordecai's execution, but instead the king tells Haman to honor Mordecai for publicly saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city in a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. <laughs> How mortifying. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive and Esther informs the king that first of all, she's Jewish. Shocker. And second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, the guy who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. And now the king, the king again, has had too much to drink. There's a theme here. And when he hears this news, he goes on yet another drunken rage and he orders that Haman be executed on the very stake that he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and totally a horrible way for Haman to go. But his execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns on Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree, but they find out that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter decree that on the appointed day that all the Jews were supposed to be killed, the Jews are now ordered to defend themselves and to avenge themselves from anyone who plotted to kill them. And this results, obviously, in the Jews being rescued from annihilation. And the story then tells how Esther and Mordecai established by decree an annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate the deliverance from destruction. The book concludes with a short epilogue on Mordecai as he is elevated to second in command to the king and the Jews thrive in peace. Here we go. So a little context for our story today. A little context. Let's look a little bit more in detail now. Let's look at the scriptures. Let's look at some verses here about the supporting character Mordecai and how he cares for Esther in the story and how he helps her shine. So the first thing I want to look at is how Mordecai supports her. And it's, we see this right away in verses 5 through 7. We see this um, as we're given a little context for who Mordecai is. 
And it reads like this. Now, there was a, there was a citadel of, of Susa, in this citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Mordecai a cousin named, had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father or mother. This young woman, who was known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So we're given a little context here. Jew, Mordecai is a Jew, and he's living in exile, and he's living in the capital, which was the, the hub of all power and of all influence. And we're seeing that the first thing we kind of see here, what he does for Esther is he adopts her. He takes her into his family, and she's his, his cousin. So that's our first point. He supports Esther through provision, through provision. Anyone here an adopted parent or a foster parent? Yes, yes. Hey, thank you. Praise the Lord. Uh, we're always grateful, always grateful. I know my brother and sister-in-law I'm adopted fostered and then adopted, um, my nephew Jackson. And, and they've told me so much about the process and how hard it is because there's more than just pro- providing a place of stability and belonging for those children, right? It's, it's you can't help to not get attached to these beautiful kids. I mean, it's just part of the deal. And, and there's a relational care that goes way beyond just, you know, providing food and a roof over their head. Uh, it goes way beyond that. And Mordecai, he raises her as his own daughter. We see that. And And we see the impact that Mordecai has on her, not just her values, but also her identity. Even at one point, he counsels her to hide her identity for reasons that we're actually not told. And then what else we see with, with his relationship with Esther is that after she's taken, he watches out for her protection. But this is ironic because interestingly, he lets her be taken. He lets her be taken in the first place, which seems like He's not protecting her, right? But we see in verse 11, every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. I mean, you can just tell how much Mordecai cares for her, don't you? And he wants to know how she's doing. And and even though she's safe in the king's palace now, he is still watching out for her. He was even able to send messages back and forth to Esther to counsel her and and even warn her and warn about the king's life. So do you have someone in your life that looks out for you? I mean, just think of the people that have your back through thick and thin, right? We all have people like that. At least I hope we all have people like that in our lives. We need people like that in our lives, looking out for us, protecting us. I have a funny story of how this happened to me one time. Um, God got me out of a really sticky situation, actually. It was right after college. I was uh, living at home at the time, and I was out way too late <clears throat> talking to my boyfriend, okay? <laughs> I was out way too late. And I had, I had some, and still do, I guess, <laughs> I had some really clear physical boundaries when I was dating, and, and boundaries that I knew that God had given me that I was supposed to hold on to. But I'll be honest, in that moment, I was, mm, I was wavering. <laughs> I was wavering and, and out of nowhere, I kid you not, my phone starts to ring. And I thought this was odd. I see it's my dad, so I immediately answer it because I'm thinking it's an emergency. He never calls me in the middle of the night. 
And so I answer it and I kid you not, this is what he says. He says, hey, Heather, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. <laughs> uh, he said, God just woke me up and told me that you're in a compromising situation and that you should come home right now. I cannot make this up, okay? <laughs> this is, I was like, what? So I closed that phone <laughs> and uh, needless to say, I immediately got out of that situation and uh, uh, later on actually out of the relationship as well. <laughs> um, I just wanna say for those of you that are younger in the room, God really does care about your boundaries in relationships. He cares about you way more than you realize. And boy, he saw, he saw the hurt I could have gone through if I had wavered anymore. And, and he saved me from that through a really cool way, through a, for my dad, even though I was an adult, he still used my dad to, to get me out of a situation that probably would have just hurt me, you know, later on down the line. I don't think that, I think a lot of times when we are adults, especially, or when we think, you know, we've got it together, that, you know, we don't, we don't need help, right? But we do, we do. I think God has intentionally put us in community with multi-generational, at least I hope, a multi-generational community where you have people that you can look up to, people that are mentors, people that are looking out for you, that will give you solid advice and, and help you navigate the sticky situations of life. We need people like that, that have our back through thick and thin, don't we? And that's how Mordecai was with Esther. The third thing we see is that he counsels her through exhortation. And the word exhortation just means to encourage, but it's a strong encourage. It's to incite, to earnestly advise someone. And he does this, doesn't he? In verses 13 and 14, do not think that just because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your family, father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. See, Mordecai is not afraid to speak truth to now the queen. He still sees her as his little Hadassah, right? And we still see that she respects his advice and counsel. She trusts his judgment and she listens to his rebuke. And for some of us, I think that's the real question. Are we willing to even listen to advice? And that's, that's hard to do. We'd rather go on YouTube and listen to like all the things that we want to hear and all the selective advice that we want to gain. But when it comes to our lives and our choices, do we have anyone in our lives that has the right to sit us down and go, hey, what you doing? What's going on? You know, <laughs> we need people that are, that are trusted friends and, and mentors that, that can sit us down and tell us honestly what they, what they see going on in our lives and point things out and, and maybe even kindly rebuke us. And the question also is, are we that kind of friend to others? Are we the kind of friend that's willing to ruffle a few feathers uh, to tell the truth to a trusted friend? Now, I would say this, we don't always have that, that kind of equity with everyone. We can't just go around and start telling, well, I'm just telling you the truth. You know? and I like ruffling feathers. That's, that's great, but you have to have equity to do that in a relationship, right? And so we, have a few, we probably have a few people in our lives that, that God's saying, hey, are you being truthful with them? Are you loving them well by being truthful? And, and I think that's, that's an important part of being a good friend is exhorting each other toward the truth. And lastly, what we see with Mordecai is that he supports Esther through intercession, through intercession. 
Uh, we, we, after she receives Mordecai's counsel, which we just read, to plead with the king for their lives, Esther makes this famous statement. In verses 16 and 17, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. The question is here, do we have people that are praying for us? Oh boy, I'm just so grateful for those of you and my family that are, that are praying for me. Uh, we need it. We need it. It is a kind of spiritual care that's invisible but profoundly essential in our lives. And the other question is, do we pray for others? Do we pray for those in our lives? I would even say maybe consider writing a list of people that are, you know, really, that maybe God puts on your heart that you would pray for on a consistent basis. What a gift. I mean, intercession is a gift, right? And not just to the person receiving the prayer, but to you. Any of you who love to intercede for people, I mean, I, I know uh, that it is a gift to be able to pray for others and to really just bring them before the throne of God, right? Now, I say all that, uh, which is all really great stuff about Mordecai, right? Great ways that he supports Esther. And, and we really could just end there. I say, you know, guys, we should just all be a little bit more like Mordecai, right? We should all be a little more like Mordecai. And we could end the sermon there. We could. But I think that would be short-sighted. Really short-sighted. And a really short sermon. <laughs> really short sermon. Because this account was not written to moralize Mordecai. It wasn't. That's not why this account is in the Bible. And remember, he was not the main character of the story. And we actually need to look past even what we think is the main character, Esther. We need to look past Esther even to the one who is faithfully at work behind the scenes. If anything, Mordecai's trust in God is what really teaches us something. That's what really shows us something and something really cool too. So let's look at that just briefly. I wanna look at how Mordecai puts his trust in God throughout this story, just briefly here. See, just as Esther was supported by Mordecai, Mordecai is supported by God throughout the whole story. See, when he refuses to bow down to Haman, he is trusting God with his, what, provision. He's taking a huge risk by not bowing. It's not only his job that he's putting in jeopardy at the palace gate, but he's putting his very life in jeopardy. But instead of following the crowd at his workplace, because he gets a lot of questions. If you read the text, he actually gets a lot of questions. Dude, why aren't you bowing? Like, bow, come on. Like, you're making us look bad. Instead of just going with the crowd, he trusts that God will provide for him. He trusts his job to God and his life. And then we see that when he finds out that his people are gonna be annihilated, <laughs> including himself, we see he puts his trust in God's provision, his promises, uh, that deliverance will come. Remember, he even says, if it's not through you, Esther, it will be through someone else. It will be through someone else. He trusts in God's prov provision and protection and the promises that he had made that he would not blot out the Jewish people. And then we see when he uncovers that plot to kill the king, he is not rewarded right away. He does this incredible act. I mean, he saves the king's life and he gets nothing. 
like no recognition, nothing. And it takes years for his brave act to be recognized. But instead of complaining about it, uh, he remains content to do his job within the king's gate. He doesn't try to exalt himself or promote himself. He lives his life in a supporting role, trusting that God sees him. I love this quote from Rick Bizet. He says, when you are humble, you notice needs. When you are prideful, you carry the need to be noticed. The need to be noticed. Mm. See, lastly, when he hears of the ruling to annihilate his people, what does he do? He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, which were a sign of mourning and grief. And what does he do? He prays. He prays. In utter desperation, when all hope is lost, he intercedes to God on behalf of his people. Mordecai was a deeply faithful man behind the scenes whose trust in the Lord underlied everything he did, his trust in God. And what we see at the end of the story in chapter 10, it's interesting that the book of Esther doesn't begin or end with her. It actually ends with Mordecai. In the end, we see he's exalted and honored, that he's given a position second to the king. Everything is reversed and Mordecai's given everything. I think that's really interesting. It brings my my attention to that verse in in Hebrews 11.1. And I really like the message paraphrase here. It says, the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. It's our handle on what we can't see. In closing, this verse uh, really does kind of point to something here, something truly ingenious about how this story, the story of Esther, is actually written. When we begin to read it, If you have time, try to start reading it. About 10 minutes in, we too should start to notice something's up. Something's up with this story. And for some of you, you know this. You know this about the book of Esther. Something's missing. Something's missing. It is the only book in the entire Bible where God is not named, not mentioned, and not referenced in any way in any way, not even once. And this is intentional, intentional. The author wasn't like, oh my gosh, I forgot God. Oh, nah. (laughs) It was not an oversight. It was deliberate. It's a literary device. He is making a point here, the author is. And the point being is this, God is at work even when it appears like he's not. God is at work even when it appears like he's not. Who here needs to hear that today? (laughs) Amen, amen. The theme of trusting in an invisible God who works through imperfect people, thank God, through ordinary events on our behalf is called the provision and providence of God the providence of God. This story is an incredible reminder that even when God seems absent in our lives, he does not abandon us. He does not. And he does not abandon his people in this story. 
He works in our lives and stays faithful to his promises. Remember how I said before that this story is full of ironic reversals and odd coincidences? You'll see that a lot in this book. It all forces us to see God's purposes at work behind the scenes. Now, usually in scripture, whenever Israel is in trouble, God comes through in a big way, like part the Red Sea, you know, like here, you know, deliver my people in a really big way. But in this book, there's no miracles, no miracles, no visions, no dreams, nothing even very spiritual about this book. And he seems completely absent and silent. And boy, I think for some of us, especially if you are in a hard season right now, we need this. We need this reminder that though God feels absent, he is not. And he as, is as much as working on your behalf, just behind the scenes. We need that reminder today. You know, it's true that when life feels hard and when we're going through a hard season, it, it's so, my counselor and I, we talk about this all the time, <laughs> how life can feel like you're just so alone, like you're the only one, right? And in Dane, Dane Ortland, he says this, he says, our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into felt isolation. The Bible corrects this, it corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in, and that's Jesus. We are never alone. And that sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past on the cross and is now shouldered by him right here in the present, in the present. What do we read in Ephesians and Philippians? These are great verses. Even when we're blind to the evidence, God works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. That's the truth. And in Philippians, God works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, as the worship team comes back up, I wanna end with this. Uh, Karen Jobes, who's a commentator on the book of Esther, she just does a wonderful job. Got a lot of my, my, the good stuff from this, <laughs> from her commentaries. She says actually this about her own life. She says, it was a hundred small incidences over time, whether good or bad, that led me to where I am today. At the moment, they were completely ordinary, but looking back, they were incredibly significant. See, God is the true main character of this story, and he's the true main character of our story, of our story, but he's in an unseen role, isn't he? He's in an unseen role. We are called though to follow him, to reflect him, to trust him like Mordecai, even though we can't see him, even though we can't see him. I love what A.W. Tozer says. He says, at the root of the Christian life lies the belief in the invisible. The object of the Christian's faith is an unseen reality. And that's the tension, isn't it? That's the tension holding on to something we cannot see. And this is what makes Mordecai's life and his faith so astounding, truly trusting in an unseen God and that he's at work, even when all hope seems lost. 
And I think some of, here, some of us here, we need this reminder and example today to remember to hold on to the truth of God's providence at work, trusting that no matter what's going on in our lives, he's working on our behalf. Amen? Amen. Well, let's go ahead and stand. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.